Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Carrie Holman, who is a rapier fencer and a licensed therapist. She has also written Psychology and the SCA Fencing Woman, a manual for students and teachers. The moment I read it, I asked if I could include it in my How to Teach course because it's that good. So, without further ado, Carrie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. And so, whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, I live in the North Chicago suburbs, so greater Chicagoland area. Sorry, my camera just went kaput. <laughs> That's okay. You, have, you, you are frozen with a delightful expression on your face. It's one of those days. And now my cat's talking. I don't know if you can hear her or not. <laughs> not to worry. Okay, so we'll just we'll just leave the camera if you're happy with it. Sure. All right. And I may remember to edit that out. I may leave it in <laughs> just for realism for the listeners. Realism. Okay, that's right. Realism. <laughs> yes. None of this is ever edited. Honest. It's all absolutely it's true all to life. Good. <laughs> uh, okay, so you're in the Chicago area. So who yep. do you train with? Uh, well, I train with uh, a group in the SCA. Um, we are mm-hmm. called the Thieves of Hearts. Um, Thieves kinda, of Hearts, okay. Yes. Uh, we used to kind of be known as kind of like a fencing house with like a service problem. Now we're kind of a service group with like a fencing problem. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> okay. we love to help. We love to teach. We love to do things. Um, there's also two people at our practices. Um, we call them Logos and Terry. Um, we jokingly and lovingly call them the great old ones. Because uh, we're pretty convinced if they were alive in period that they would have <laughs> been two of the people writing these manuals. We're not entirely convinced that Logos isn't actually Salvador Fabris. We think there's a painting somewhere that he keeps maybe in his attic, a la Dorian Gray. Okay. But this is all within the uh, SCA. Okay. And, and who is Terry? It's not Terry Tyndall, is it? Yes, it is. You know Terry. I know Terry very well. Um, oh, my I have God. this fantastic... Yeah, he, 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 makes, he makes... Or he used to make um, the only... Uh, sort of fencing mask that was worth anything for mm-hmm. heavier weapons. Um, yep. The fantastic piece of kit. Oh, and, just about um, everybody at practice has one of his masks or one of his helmets, whatever you right. want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. And he also makes these, uh, using the, like, the offcuts with these, no, no, the offcuts oh, no. with, of the, of the 
pierced steel plates. That's makes right. These, these sort of um, what do you call it? the Mansur style fencing goggles with a nose yes, plate. Yes, that's right? right. Yeah. And uh, I saw them, and I was like, "Well, if one was in pink, I'd buy it." And <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a very good customer of his, or at least I was. And the next time I saw him, he just handed me over this pair with this, this pair in pink. It's like baby pink leather. <laughs> Of course he did. Of course he did. I will put a photograph in the show notes. So please can see what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, he lives, gosh, maybe only an hour from me. I see him at practice every week. Oh, fantastic. Well, well, next time you see him, give him a big hug from me. I will. Um, Okay, so what kind of therapist are you? Uh, Well... Well, so I would say like I'm a talk therapist. Uh, that's pretty traditional when you think of, you know, when you mm-hmm. think of therapy, somebody sitting on the couch. Um, I do not ask people, how does that make you feel? Um, that's a little cliche. I have other ways of asking that same question. Um, my, my two kind of my specialties, my passions in therapy are trauma as well mm-hmm. as working with people in the queer community. Um, I do work with a lot of transgender persons, you know, kind of just wherever mm-hmm. they are in their transition. And sometimes I'm just the therapist that somebody can come to and say, like, look, I am depressed and I'm also gay, but I'm not depressed because I'm gay. There is still a surprising amount of people out there who go, well, maybe you're depressed because you're gay. It's like, or maybe it's because my job sucks. You know, maybe it's something else. (laughs) So those are kind of my two Or maybe it's because you're gay, but you can't get laid. Or that, or... Hell, you know, my, my family rejected me or, you know, my dad tried to kick me out of the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so sometimes the two do intertwine the trauma and, mm-hmm. you know, being part of the queer community, but not always. Um, but, you know, th- those are my two big passions along with all of the other things you see as a therapist. Okay. But before we started recording, you mentioned something about this sort of eye therapy thing. Could oh, you yes. Just, just run us through that for a second. Sure. Uh, it's called EMDR. It stands for Eye Movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a fancy way of saying that this is a treatment for trauma. So it was originally developed for trauma. And that the key is that your therapist makes your eyes move back and forth. I know this sounds like hypnotism. I promise it's not. What that action does is it activates both sides of your brain and really Mm -hmm. lets you kind of dive into a traumatic memory in a way that is safe. As long as you're doing this with like a trained therapist, a therapist who is trained in EMDR, don't just try to do this on yourself in a mirror. Um, And it's just, it's a really effective way to dive deep into a traumatic memory in a way, as I said, that is safe and really just kind of clean everything out. I kind of liken it to like a bunch of papers strewn on the floor and EMDR helps you pick them up, put all the papers back in order, put them in the filing cabinet and then close that filing cabinet so the memory is sitting where it's supposed to be, kind of where it belongs as a memory, not something okay. that's hot and heated and painful anytime something even vaguely touches it. Okay. Interesting. So so basically it's a, a neurological hack. Yes. That's actually a really great way of putting it. It's a neurological hack. And so we can do this in ostensibly fewer sessions than doing talk therapy. Talk therapy could take, yeah. you know, many months, many years, maybe EMGR. I can never promise somebody how many sessions it's going to take, you know, given whatever, whatever memories are, are present, but it usually doesn't take as long as doing this, the talk therapy way. That's more of a slow spiral down as opposed to like a, just an off the diving board in we go type of thing. Yeah. Maybe I should have gone with that because um, I had some therapy a little while ago, mm-hmm. five years ago um, for 
what happened when I was sent off to boarding school when I was eight. Oh, Very no. Very traumatic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's oh. all right. I'm all right now. <laughs> all good. But, yeah, that's all. Because, you know, because I went to therapy. So, and, and honestly, the therapy, the sort of talk therapy thing, I think it was probably a necessary part of the whole process. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't particularly effective. Yeah. For me. Yeah. It was like, okay, so we're basically just talking about it. And I feel the same way about it now as I did when I was coming in. Yeah. And there are plenty of people I can talk about it with. So, yeah. you know, why am I paying this particular person? Yeah, I could do this cheaper with... chunks of money. <laughs> yeah, I could do this cheaper with a friend over a pint. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, but but still, you know, I think maybe the for me, the perhaps the most useful thing about the therapy session mm-hmm. with a professional was refiling things yeah. from secret to private. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. I like how you said that. Because... Well, right. If 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 there's something about yourself that you feel you have to keep secret, it mm-hmm. becomes like this 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 engine of shame, mm-hmm. and and it may not be something you want to tell the whole world about. Yeah. But there is a fundamental difference between something being private and something being secret. Uh huh. Right. And just refiling that stuff mm-hmm. from secret to private. Yeah. Was for me, it was a massive part of the whole process of getting better. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm going to actually, I'm, I'm probably going to steal that one. I'm going to steal that analogy. Go ahead. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like it. You can have it. <laughs> Yay. Um, all right. So, so getting, getting slightly, slightly back on, more back on topic. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So you have quite, quite a bit of experience in the fencing world, historical I'd like to think world. so. Okay. Um, can you just run over, before we go into, you know, what all historical martial arts instructors seem to be doing wrong. Before we get there, let's just establish that you have some experience. So, so yeah. how long have you been fencing? What, what kind of stuff fencing do you do? Oh, that God. kind of thing. Um, I started fencing really back in 06. So however many okay. years that's been, math is not my specialty, and that's more than 10 fingers. Uh, 15, <laughs> 17 years, let's say? 16. 16, thank yeah, you. Somebody can do math. My friends do say, don't let me do math unattended. I'll hurt myself. And they're not entirely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been doing, so I've been doing this, you know, about 16 years. Um, as I said, I've been training with the thieves. I've been training with Terry and Logos. Um, my primary teacher within the SCA is uh, master Kai Seng. Um, in real life, he's Jim Lai. Um, I think he's a fabulous teacher. I can't sing his praises enough. Excellent. Um, do you, like within the SCA, I mean, do you compete? Do you? Oh yes. Uh, so yeah. So um, okay. much of the I don't know about other I don't know about other uh, Western martial arts organizations, but most of our competitions are like in the, the spring through the autumn. You know when at least around the Midwest when the weather's nice and we can be outside is yeah. when most is when most of our competitions are. So that's when most of this stuff happens is through those months. Um, so I'll go. I'll do the competitions. Um, in the Midwest, uh, the mid-realm is what we call the our, our kingdom, our administrative unit, really. Um, throughout the year, we have um, these events that are specifically for teaching. Um, so, okay. like, there'll be, uh, like, the Midlands Academy of Defense is in Illinois. The Constellation Academy of Defense is in Indiana and things like that. Um, so, I love going to those. Um, I love learning. I love teaching. Um, throughout the years, as I was putting that manual together... Um, I would be kind of bringing my, my findings thus far to those events. And I'd be, okay, well, here's, 
here's what I learned for what's going to become this chapter. And here's what I've learned for this chapter. What do you guys think? What have been your observations? What are your thoughts? What are your experiences? And being able to fold all of that into the, into the psychological research that I was doing and reading and finding. Ah, that's pretty helpful. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about psychology and the SCA fencing woman. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, I've read it obviously, and I liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much as I, as you know, because I emailed you about it. Yes. And and there's this lovely bit where you're you're basically telling blokes to sit with their discomfort with what you're telling them. It's just fun. Yes. It <laughs> yes. was just so good. It's like, <laughs> oh, I'm like, glad you really. liked it. <laughs> I, it was it was fantastic because it's like it's pe- people can be a little bit fragile when when they're being told that they are um, they are unintentionally doing something that's bad for other people. Mm-hmm. They really don't like to be told that. Yeah. And then they are saying, well, actually, this thing that you think you're doing that's supposed to be, like, good and helpful is actually really not. So maybe you could stop. Yeah, and basically. You're, anti- you're, you're anticipating you're anticipating the the sense of, but, 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 but this is, this is I'm, I'm helping them. I'm trying to make them better at this and they want to get better and this is how you do it you're anticipating all of that going well actually just just actually no okay yeah so why why don't you why don't you just summarize the the thesis of psychology in the SCA fencing woman okay and then we can discuss it sure well I'll start with with a little bit of background as to how I got started on this whole thing uh so round about I think it was around about 2016 um, the uh, the people who were uh, sta- who were being the, the current king and queen of of uh, the mid realm, they gathered the masters of defense, which is like our highest level of fencing award. Um, we say it's kind of like getting your PhD, just as you know, as a, a, an easy analogy. So they gathered all these people and they said, "Hey, look, in the Midwest, in our kingdom, fifty one percent of the registered fencers are women, or you know, or identify as female." Okay, well that really. That's- yeah. 15, 51%. That's fantastic. Yeah. Are registered fencers. Like, hey, you've done your authorization. Yes, you can, you know, you're, you're safe to yeah, play. Yeah, yeah. That matches the world population. 51% of people yeah. who are born are born into, I will say, a female body. Because I don't want to be making assumptions sure. here about anybody's identity. And they went, however, the higher up we get in skill level, which we mark with with these awards, um, the higher up we get, the fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer women there are. Why? Mm-hmm. And they were all going, well, I, I don't know. And so then Kai, my teacher, he came to me and he asked me that question. And we and I went through all the same usual suspects that they did. Like, okay, well, are they, are they leaving the SCA? Are they going on to other aspects of the SCA? You know, is it that they, they had children and there's, there's, you know, they have less time? None of this accounted for the numbers. Although, can I just interject here and say men have children too? And, yes, they do. And 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 you're absolutely right that it's women are more likely to quit because yeah. of having children than it men is. are because of the way labour is distributed. Yeah. But but you know, as a as a parent, yes, um, I would love to have uh, two two of my friends and teammates, um, Cole and Anna, because they're both fencers. They're both very skilled fencers. And they're a couple with children. I would, I wish I had them right here and they could talk about how they do they, you know, that equitable distribution of parenting, let's say, so that they yeah. both get a chance to go have their fun. But anyway, yeah. so that didn't account for any, that didn't account for these numbers. 
And I was like, well, gee, I don't know. And he goes, hey, you know that psychology degree you have? <laughs> I went, okay, I'll go see what I can find out. And that sent me down this rabbit hole where what I, what I found, what my theory is, is that it's the way in which we are teaching these women that is causing a lot of them to drop out. I started just doing, Makes you know, sense. kind of informal and semi-formal interviews with just women fencers and women in the SCA who I knew used to fence and go, what are you, what are the challenges? What are you fighting? And uh, we had a round table years ago and it was, it was beautiful. Like all of the women were sitting in this inner circle and men kind of started coming and sitting on the outer edges. And every one of them was very smart because every one of them just kept their mouths shut and just yes. listened. <laughs> just listened. And as I looked around, as women were saying, like I asked, like, what do you wish everybody knew? Like, what is the one thing you wish you could tell all of the men in the fencing community? And as I kind of looked around at the men and I saw all their eyes get real big, they were all going, we had no idea. And I'm going, oh, okay. And so that's ultimately how we got here. And I went, I think it's how we're teaching women. I think... Most, at least in the SCA, most of the most of the high level fencers are men, and so a lot of the instructors are men. And very, very, very few of us are trained in any sort of you know professional teaching capacity. And so we, what do we do? We teach how we were taught. That's the best we got. But that right. may not be the best for your students. And just basic psychology: male and female brains are wired differently. Uh, trans brains are wired differently. NB brains are wired differently. Um, fun fact: tra- like a trans brain, if you like stick in, you know stick somebody in, in, an, in an MRI, their brain will pattern and track more closely to their true to their true gender than their birth gender. Right. Which I just think right. I love that. Yeah. I think that's so wild that I love it. It it, it that strikes me as as it would be surprising if it was any other way. I know, right? Like as soon as you hear it, you go, oh well, of course. Yeah, well, I, I would I would assume that that's why they're trans. That's like yeah. the because well, the, yeah. have a, you have a female brain in a male body or in a, a male body. So of course this doesn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So sorry. Carry on. Um, so no, you, I think that, been, go ahead. But you, you've you've established that that uh, female brains are wired differently to male brains, but the yeah. teaching pattern, the way things were being taught in the SCA, was. I am guessing suited to a male pattern. Yeah, more suitable to a male pattern. And so things that I found either men responded well to or just it didn't mm-hmm. bother them, women mm-hmm. didn't respond well to or it very much bothered them. Um, okay. In the past past few years, I have thankfully started to see this this technique kind of start to die, at least among the people I know. And maybe it's because mm-hmm. I've been harping on it, um, <laughs> is what I call the whack don't die method. Yep. Where it's okay, so let's very basic. Okay, here's how you parry. Parry my sword. If you screw it up, I'll stab you. Okay, right. go. Whack. Well, you did it wrong. Whack. Well, you did it wrong. Whack. Well, you did it wrong. This. Yeah. Uh, I've had plenty of men who go, I don't actually like that either. I have learned. So, I mean, I'm like, yeah, because we don't either. Okay, okay. The, but the, the yeah. problem with it mm-hmm. is that it's the right idea executed wrong. Uh-huh. Exactly. Right. So, so you know, when I'm giving a fencing lesson, mm-hmm. the way that you indicate that the student needs to adjust what they're doing in some way is they fail to hit you and you 
make contact with them at whatever level of intensity is appropriate to the student. Yes. Right? Yeah. And that may be literally just a gentle poke in the chest or a gentle tap on the mask, or it may be something a bit more vigorous if that's what they need. Yeah. Right? But, but the thing is, they have to perceive that as just a kind of objective reality to orient towards, not mm-hmm. a value judgment. Yes. And right? the it has nothing brain, to yeah. do with... Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with... It has nothing to do with are they good or bad. It oh. has everything to do with um, are they doing the action at the level yeah. they're trying to do it at or not. Yeah. And here's the other thing. The other bit that's missing from most of this whack down die mm-hmm. approach is optimal rate of failure, mm-hmm. right? So somebody tries to do it. You make sure they get the first couple right. Uh-huh, you do it exactly. so slowly, so quietly that they can get it right. Exactly. And then you gradually increase it. And yeah. optimal rate of failure for most people most of the time is somewhere around 20%. Yeah. So if if I throw my sword at you five times, you'll parry it four. Yeah. Right? If, yep. it's, if you parry it every time, I need to go a bit faster. If you yeah. parry it fewer times, if you, if you, in inverted commas, fail mm-hmm. more often, then... I mean, some students can tolerate a rate of failure at around 45% if they're highly motivated, highly trained, and they really understand what's going on. Yeah. Uh, They won't get frustrated. But for most students at -hmm. that level, they get frustrated and they'll feel discouraged. Yeah. But if they're never failing, they're never learning anything. Yeah. And if they're failing all the time, they get discouraged. And this is, it's just getting it to that, Mm -hmm. that optimal rate of failure. So whack, don't die. Whack, you know, you got it wrong. Whack, you got it wrong. Two in a row is already too many, particularly. Yeah. The thing that, our thing that I heard, and the funny thing is I said this to myself and like every woman I asked agreed. Um, And I'm sure many men would as well. Like if I didn't get this right the first 12 times, what in the world makes you think I'm going to get it right the 13th? Exactly. Throw it down. Tell me again. Change something, teacher, because I'm clearly not getting this. With the added detriment that with that physical strike – Especially, especially a new fencer, somebody who does, you know, who doesn't have that trusting relationship in their teacher, or just, just in general, you know, every everybody's wired differently. But the female brain takes that as being punished for having tried. I tried and I got physically hit. Our brain takes that as a punishment. Like, well, I tried and I just, and I just got punished. And so your brain, your subconscious brain, even if consciously you're going, okay, keep going, keep trying, keep trying, your subconscious brain, whose number one immediate con- number one concern is your immediate survival, starts to draw you back and goes, no, don't do this. This is not good. This is scary. This is painful. Even though cognitively you're still trying, and then you see the student and they're, they started off fine. But now they're doing worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then the teacher and the student take a break and they both leave in utter frustration. But you see, and again, this is why everyone should always start with things they can do. Uh-huh. Right? So and, you know, when teaching anybody anything, like, you know, when teaching yeah. students how to how to lunge or whatever, you start yeah. with what they can do and then you, mm-hmm. you modify what they can do towards the desired action yeah you don't you don't start with the desired action which yeah. they then fail to reach you start yeah. with what they can do yeah. and just like you know if you want to improve their reach you start them close to the target oh they can mm-hmm. hit the target brilliant take a little step back see if you can still reach it yeah. take a little bit step back see if, see if you can still reach it and then when they get to the point where they're sort of struggling to reach it say okay now maybe we should do some some exercises to help you hit from a bit farther, yeah. farther away but their experience of all of that has been Hitting the target, hitting the target, hitting the target, hitting the target. 
oh, it's a bit difficult to hit the target. Okay, so I'm going to do something about that difficulty yeah. that I have just experienced. Yeah. Right? I think that thing that my teacher would do and still does is like, you know, when we're learning, like learning a new concept, mm-hmm. just as you said, you know, I'm going to show it to you. We're going to do it slow. Uh, we would always do it with masks off and I'll get to why in a moment. Um, okay. And so let's say, again, let's say we're doing that parry and I miss. Uh, he would stop with his sword, like, you know, a few inches from my body without actually striking my body. I can look down and go, okay, well, your sword is pointed at my chest. I clearly missed, you know, but I didn't get that physical contact that makes okay. my brain go, you've just been punished. And then as we started to get up in speed, he would then say, okay, go put your mask on. Then he would say, now I'm going to try to hit you. And that verbiage, that verbiage, very important verbiage, that verbiage is very important because it's not saying now I'm going to hit you like it's a foregone conclusion. It's if you do it right, I'm not going to get you. And then also saying the putting on of the mask was my physical indication of, okay, we have knocked this up a notch. There was a point where he didn't have to say, now I'm going to try to hit you because masks on. Okay, I know the next step of this exercise. And if it, you know, I started off good and then I was starting to mess up, maybe I'm getting sloppy or I'm getting tired, slow it back down, which is all stuff you know. <laughs> so so your experience of being taught in the SCA was actually mm-hmm. extremely positive. Yes, I got very, very lucky. Um, I had good teachers and I had teachers who were willing to learn and improve their teaching <laughs> skills. Okay, okay. I've got to tell you the best question anybody ever asked one of my students mm-hmm. about my school. Yeah. Right? They asked, and it was so good that my student came in the next time I, I saw her. She, she told me about it. She said, um, this person just asked me, is your instructor getting better? Mm-hmm. Right? And that's what they wanted to know about the school yeah. before they thought about coming to the beginner's course. I like that. Very, very good question. I like that. And the thing I think I look for, if I'm like, you know, I mean, I've got my teachers, but when I'm listening to other people, because I got, and again, I got this from my teacher. In his view, he has achieved fencing excellence when his students surpass him. And right. I love that. That his that his hope is that each one of his students one day becomes better than him. So he will teach you every trick he's got. And if you right, get yeah, him good, he will be so happy. I've seen those people who like will never teach their students every trick they know so that they can always get that one up on that te- on that student. And I'm like, okay, can we maybe talk about insecurities? Well, what's going on here? Yeah, I, I, and, and here's the thing, right? If you are mm-hmm. if you're the instructor in, in your local area, in your yeah. local group, you're probably the most experienced fencer mm-hmm. within striking distance. Yeah. Right? The only way you are going to get better as a fencer is if your students can put you under a bit of pressure. Uh-huh. Right, so you have to train your students to become the rising tide that lifts your boat up. And of yes. course, every now and then, a wave should make it over yes. the side of the boat. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, otherwise, the tide isn't really rising. Yeah, and that just sounds horribly boring. Like I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to be the biggest fish in my pond. That sounds really boring. Okay. Well, you'll enjoy this, right? About two years after I started my school, mm-hmm. one of my students um, who had never done any swords before he came to me. Yeah. We were free fencing and he disarmed me in free fencing after two years of training. <laughs> right? That that is still one of the absolute highlights of my career. Because it's like oh, in two years wonderful. as a relatively inexperienced instructor, in yeah. two years I got this 
person who had no martial arts experience, no fencing experience, no swords experience at all, good enough that he, in friendly free fencing with somebody at my level, he actually managed to pull off a disarm. Yeah. Boom. Oh, that's right. so cool. Yes, I'm, yes, exactly. I am clearly <laughs> doing the right thing. That's so cool. Um, so, yes, I'm, I, yeah, I'm very, very proud of that. <laughs> As well, um, you should be. And that, that was nearly 20 years ago now. So oh, wow. Who knows? Maybe, now I can, maybe now I can get in there in about six months. <laughs> well, that's just a testament to you learning as a how much you've learned as a teacher. One would hope. Um, yes. Okay, so basically, what I'm what I'm sort of getting from this conversation is that the the window that you took into this is basically why are women quitting from mm-hmm. fencing in the SCA? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's why they're being taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you actually established that it is why they're being taught, or is this well, a theory? Th- this is still my theory. We're going to need, you know, we're going to need more years to see, okay, if this gets widely disseminated in the mid realm and in the SCA, will the numbers go up? Um, Right. I think there must be something to it. Cause since I've started putting out this information, the number of women in those, in those higher levels is increasing. Um, It went from, I want to say 10, 15% to we're now at about 25%. We're at about a quarter. Okay. I think Masters of Defense is now slightly above a quarter. But anyway, so we're moving up. Still not enough, but we are getting – we are starting to go that way. Yeah. And and, and correlation is not causation. No. So but, you know, it we'll, could so be other we'll factors. But, it could be other factors, but, but we it, will see. But the other thing that really strikes me is that, um, again, through the window of how do we – how do we help retain women fences? Yeah, because that's the important you're also, thing. You're basically just mm-hmm. – yeah, it is a very important thing. I mean, this podcast has 50% female guests. Yeah. For to, Yeah, for precisely to encourage more women to take uh-huh. up. Uh-huh. Representation, right? representation um, matters. It absolutely does. Um, but one of the things – it kind of strikes me that the, the solution is mm-hmm. better instruction, which – it will be better for the men too because the, mm-hmm. the the problematic instruction which men can tolerate is still not good for them. Yeah, it's still not good. I don't think anybody likes to just be punished into proper performance. I really question how much that no, works. I really don't think I that works. I have had students. I have had students who 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 do actually kind of like that. Well, okay then. Glut for punishment. They, they, have at. They 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 do exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know. They, they kind of feel that if they didn't get properly whacked when they did something wrong, then... <laughs> but then but then I'm kind of like, well, you know, I am wearing black leather, but I'm not actually a... Well, I couldn't be a dominatrix because I'm male, but you get the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I, get, I get the intent. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, so what, is, okay. what, what is the term for a male well, dominatrix? Te- te- technically, dominator. Oh, Dominator that would be it, wouldn't it? Form. That would yeah. be it, yes. <laughs> like actor, actress. Yeah. Dominator, dominatrix. Aviator, um, aviatrix. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, I have actually been looking through some of your published articles, mm-hmm. and I have a question for you. Sure, fire away. Around, tra- around trauma and PTSD. Yes. Uh, I, I have some pretty strong opinions about all this. Okay. So, but we, which, which I may just leave aside or they may just kind of sneak into the conversation. Sure. But in your opinion, are we all traumatized? I mean, strictly speaking, yes. However, tra- tra- be, having trauma doesn't automatically mean you develop PTSD. That's a very common myth 
a lot of people will say, oh, if you don't have PTSD, then it wasn't trauma. No, that could Uh, still be trauma and it could still be traumatic without developing post-traumatic stress disorder. And very, you know, very creatively, because apparently therapists are great at naming things. Um, We talk about big T trauma and little T trauma, which does not indicate intensity. Uh, Big T trauma is the ones everybody thinks about. Um, Being in a war zone, uh, an assault, a really bad car wreck where your car rolls three times. Those are the ones everybody thinks about. Little T traumas are the ones that not everybody thinks about. It could be being separated from your family at the carnival. You know, you got lost. Um, I'm going to date myself. That is terrifying. And you're like, you know, that kid could be like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to live with the carnies. You know, whatever. In truth, their parents could have been like, no, we didn't lose sight of you. We knew where you were. You just didn't know where we were. Or I'm going to date myself with this one. Uh, the, The original Transformers cartoon, the original movie. I was like probably six or seven, and uh, spoiler, Optimus Prime dies. I was by <gasps> no means, oh, I know, 30-year-old spoiler, um, I was by no means the only young child who was traumatized by the death of the father figure in that show. There were many angry letters sent to Hasbro. But to this day, I have the soundtrack to that movie. It is so 80s-tastic. But to this day, I will skip track three, which is the death of Optimus Prime. When I talk about this, I hear myself and I go, this still kind of upsets you, doesn't it, Carrie? And I'm like, yes, it was really upsetting. You can hear this in my voice. Now, have I ever needed therapy for this particular incident? No. I get on in my life just fine. Did I develop PTSD from it? No. Was it still really upsetting and traumatic? Yes. Okay. I have a thought. I mean, yes. if that was if that was me, yeah. what I would do mm-hmm. is I would take some space mm-hmm. and I would play the song three or four times on repeat mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just sit with it. Yes. I would I would probably do that. Yeah. Because I don't like I don't like having time bombs in my head. Yeah. Now granted, like have I seen that movie since? Yes. I've seen the movie, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> but like as you could hear in my voice, I listen to people because your therapist brain never fully turns off. Like maybe somebody's like, oh, my God, like I thought I was lost. I got separated from my family. I thought I was going to have to like travel with the circus and be like the peanut boy. You're like, Oh, wow. Like, yeah, that was that's still upsetting. That was a little traumatic, wasn't it? That maybe not everybody else thinks of. Those are those little T traumas, but they are still just as upsetting. And as you'd asked, are we all traumatized? It is a fact of life. Things like that are going to happen. Again, do we always need therapy? Not necessarily. And when we do, does that mean that we're weak or damaged or some other nonsense? No. Well, of course not. Yeah, Um, trauma happens and PTSD happens when basically too much information went into your brain for it to process all at once. People who know about our age will probably remember the early days of the internet where you're trying to download some song and you've got the little bar on the computer that's going to be like, oh, this will download in 45 seconds, two hours, three minutes, 24 days. And it's, you know, it's bouncing all over the place. And the answer is basically, look, the song will download when it gets downloaded. Okay. Our brains can't do that. Our brains can only process so fast. And so when there's basically more data than it can deal with at one time, it just kind of throws it all over there. 
And that's where the hot and the heat and the pain of these trauma memories sit because those bits weren't processed and put in the filing cabinet like they should have been the first time. And then like that's where therapy comes in and therapy helps you take that and put it in the filing cabinet where it belongs. So it's not it's never going to be a happy memory, but the heat and the pain comes out of it. Yeah, right. I mean, like one of the reasons that I figured that I was probably done with the whole boarding school thing mm-hmm. is I can have a conversation about it with someone I've never met before yes. and I'm not upset. It doesn't yes. upset. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which is wonderful. Um so so it's, it's a fairly good like barometer of Mm-hmm. whether the distress is still active but yeah. it is funny though even though even though that is true mm-hmm. um a little while ago it was our wedding anniversary and i bought my wife a bunch of flowers which included these irises in it which were closed yeah right and which okay bunch of flowers very nice and a few days later i just had this awful sense of dread and doom and pessimism and misery oh. and i had no idea why it was bizarre mm-hmm. It was like nothing was particularly wrong. Yeah. Um, I was going to be launching my How to Teach course. So I was like, yeah, but no one's going to buy it. and I'm not going to make any money. No one's going to like it. It was just like doom and gloom and dread and misery. I am sitting here going, right? what What in your environment reminded you of something? Right. Uh-huh. Right. I tell you exactly what it was. Those irises had opened and the uh-huh. smell of them reminded uh-huh. me of the because they always had a bunch of them in the main hall at my boarding school <gasps> when I was little. That'll do it. Right? That'll and, do it. And it was that smell. It just went right into the back of my brain. Yes. And it was like it was like I was stuck in that hole again. Yes. Smell is our most Yeah, smell is our most evocative sense. We don't right. think about it as much in a modern era because we, we we are very clean. You know, our environment yeah. doesn't typically smell. But nothing can take you back to a specific moment in time in the way that a smell does. It's like instant. Right. Yeah. And, and the thing was, though, as soon as I figured it out, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. And everything oh, was for, cleared. Yeah. Oh, for Pete's sake. Okay. We got this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm on my show. You can say fuck if you want. It's okay. Yay. It's, it's fuck it. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's so funny that you mentioned that um, when I was learning how to do EMDR, you know, with other therapists and we had to like practice this on each other. Uh, my partner was a former state trooper and we were processing a memory. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail because I don't want to, you know, inadvertently you know, yeah. traumatize anybody listening. But as we're doing this, he suddenly went cooking meat. This is why I hate the smell of cooking meat. Like he hates bar. He would oh, hate God. barbecues. Like if he was at a barbecue, he'd have to like go inside. And he's like, this wow. is why I hate that smell. Like 20 years and he finally made the connection that the smell of, you know, barbecue made him think of this other thing. Oh, yeah, I can figure out. Yeah, I know exactly what that other thing is. But yes, no, yeah. that's horrible. Yeah. But <laughs> luckily, we, yeah, luckily we were able to process that. We were working on that original memory. We were able to process it. And he's like 20 years and I can finally let this go. Wow. Yeah, well, it works. It does. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. Yeah, although I'm okay. <laughs> it's a shame my camera stopped working because you'll you'll see that I'm sort of thinking. Um, I, can I can hear edit. you. I can hear you I thinking. Can, I, I can edit. <laughs> yeah, I can edit out the long silences. I will be pretty careful how I say this because mm-hmm. it's not my intention to diminish anybody else's experience. Yeah. Right. But I think that in the rush to be sympathetic about trauma, we can make it worse mm-hmm. because. 
to my mind, and speaking just from my own experience, I'm not speaking for anybody else here, the salient point, the thing that actually matters is that I won, right? So I I don't like things like, you know, victim of this or survivor mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. right? Because it, it basically, it creates a narrative in which this awful thing happened and you survived or this awful thing happened and mm-hmm. worse, you were a victim of it, Yeah. right? And both of those are passive, mm. right? And so, you know, there's, there's a group like boarding, boarding school survivors. Uh, it's yeah. like unknown. I don't, I don't identify with that at all. Like, fuck, yeah. I got through 10, 10 years of that shit without yeah. drinking the Kool-Aid. That, to my mind, counts as a victory. Yeah. So, I can so see where whole, you do, I can see where you don't like victim survivors. Some people very much like the survivor narrative yeah. because it takes them out of that victim where it's like, I did make it through. But again, yeah, we could we so, could get into yeah, a whole but, other but, conversation about some people like labels, some people hate labels. We could get into a whole other podcast on that. Yeah, I'm 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 not a huge fan of labels, as you probably guess. But think about this, right? Let's let's take let's let's say you ran a marathon, mm-hmm. right? And it was a challenging and grueling experience. And from a physiological perspective, it's actually pretty damn traumatic. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But you don't you don't say somebody who completed the marathon survived the marathon. Mm-hmm. They're not a marathon survivor. Mm-hmm. They're a marathon winner or I suppose runner the, or the difference completer. There, or I suppose the difference there is, is the voluntary. assumption that you're yeah is that the, that you are voluntarily I hope running sure. this marathon. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and it's, it's like I, I heard a, a friend of mine you know, talking about this person who had been horrible to, uh, and mm-hmm. you know maybe want to go and punch him in the head, but I didn't because I have self control. Darn. But yeah, well, it wouldn't have helped. No, um, it wouldn't have. Most, most, most particularly, it wouldn't have helped her at all. It might have helped uh, me relieve my feelings. Yeah, you'd feel better, but it wouldn't getting, help her. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But she referred to this person as my bully. It's like I no, hate no, 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 that. No, no. That's, I hate that. That's a that's a terrible narrative. Yeah. Because it 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 means that you are in the language that you're using, you are connecting yourself to this person who you don't. Like, and yeah, it don't be take, horrible to you. Don't take ownership so, of the bully. It's the bully. Exactly. A bully. Yes. <laughs> not yours. Exactly. Yeah, well, you, you were saying earlier that language matters. And I think in mm-hmm. things like this, in how we how we express it. Um, and then, you know, if you think about it, a lot of what we do in fencing, if you took out the consent, would absolutely be assault. Yes. Right? Yes. And, 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 the, and, you know, sometimes injuries occur, which mm-hmm. you've consented to the risk of, if not to the injury itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even when there's no blame to be assigned, there a traumatic experience has been gone through. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, we don't, we don't describe it in terms of trauma. We describe it yeah. in terms of, you know, an accident or, a, you know, or... Yeah. You know, or actually sometimes, you know, people like display their bruises going, oh, well, that was a good Wednesday night. My arms are stripy. Yeah. Um, Which shows that 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 wasn't an upsetting occurrence. Exactly. Exactly. Or maybe it it was at the time and and, and your brain processed it. And then sometimes something happens and your brain goes, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. And there's a a trick your brain can do. Like, Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, you know, when I've been fencing someone or whatever, and they have suddenly surprised me with something they weren't supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? 
life, for instance, doing having a rapier fencing match with someone, and it's sort of implicit that you don't end up wrestling on the floor. Yeah. Um, and this person ignored several hits to the head and body and just mm-hmm. charged in and got me on the ground in an yeah. armbar, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, this is not what I will agree to. And yeah. this, but, but the thing is, getting up, I was really pissed off. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of went, well, and, but actually, you know, in, in terms of the actual fencing match, I hammered him, yeah. literally. I mean, mm-hmm. I was lying there in an armbar beating him over the head with my sword. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. it's like he, he hadn't got his head around the idea that actually yeah. we're fencing. Yeah, he thought we were wrestling, but holding these blunt metal sticks yeah. for some reason. I would be um, interested if we had, I'll say, a panel of men and women. How different people would respond to that? Because like I would right. be pissed, it, it, but there would also be a part of my brain that was going, "A man has just attacked you. You are in mortal danger." Yes, and I would absolutely. I would hate that because I'd be like, you just made me literally afraid for my life. Do not. Yeah, I, yeah and, and my experience of it was I thought he was going to break my arm. Yeah. Right? And it was quite frightening. But maybe because of the context it occurred in mm-hmm. and maybe because no real injury happened yeah. and maybe also because in in that context I have actually won already. Yeah. It's um, also power dynamics. Power dynamics it, is a it, big yeah. thing. That at the end of the day it, you were the instructor, and at the end of the day you're both male. Like well, I no, okay, I wasn't. I wasn't the instructor in that. Oh, okay, then two 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 peers fencing. Yeah, yeah um, okay. Yeah, if if I'd been the instructor in that situation, it wouldn't have happened. Well, okay, that's fair. Yes, that is fair. But yeah, like you um, had said earlier, you know, early on that manual, you know, I I ask men to sit with their discomfort because any decent man, if I say to him you're making these women uncomfortable, is gonna feel bad about it. Sure. Any decent man is. Um, there's places in the manual where we talk a little bit about power dynamics and what we are socialized to do. Um, it's very common when I have like a new female identifying fencer that there's this weird thing going on in her brain, this weird dissonance where we're like, come on, hit me. Like you got to sort of hit me. And they kind of go, ah, poke. <laughs> and then like dissolve into like these really awkward giggles because her brain is going, what are you doing? Little girls are sugar and spice and everything nice. You don't hit people. and But she's enjoying this and her brain is going, no, this is not what we were trained to do. But then you also have, I find a lot of women feel like they can't speak up with, with an instructor, with an authority figure, or especially like a male authority figure. Because at least in the U.S., because this is where I live, women are very much socialized to capitulate to and attend to men's emotions mostly for our own safety. Even when we sure. know, again, even when we know cognitively, like, like I'll say Terry, you know, oh my God, you know, Terry is never going to hurt anybody. I mean, no, unless no, you deserve it. he's one of the nicest men on the planet. Yeah, one of the nicest <laughs> men on the planet. <laughs> but but, but even, even if you deserve it, you probably won't actually hurt you. Yeah, he'll, you know, I mean, he'll rip you apart verbally. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like Terry would jump in front of a bus for you. Um, but there's still that part of at least my female brain, there's the, there's the instinctive bit that goes, oh, he's bigger and stronger than me. And there's that war between the cognitive, oh, for Pete's sake, it's Terry, and the instinctive, oh, but it's a dude and he's bigger than you and he could kill you. And so that's, that's a dissonance that I want all fencers and teachers and fighting partners to attend to and to at least respect because that can be worked through, but it takes time. 
And it's not about any individual person. It's not you, Guy. It's not you, Terry. It's her life history. Um, I find a number, I've met a number of people who, for whatever reason, you hit them in this one particular spot and they are, it just throws them for a loop. Like the hamster falls out of the wheel. Um, for me, it's, it's like that face shot, like right between the eyes, especially when I didn't see it coming that Mm -hmm. knocks me right out. And I'm just like, did anybody get the number on that truck? I feel upset and disoriented and I need to go sit down. Now, we have trained me out of this, but there was a lot of time where I was like, I don't know what it is about that shot, but that so mm-hmm. disorients and upsets me. Um, I know people where it's it's that it's that shot on the top of the gorget that's like right at the throat that they're like, oh, my God, hold on. Check. Am I OK? Am I live? Check. Oh, oh, OK, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. OK. <sighs> did so did you figure out why? Did you figure out no why clue. it was that shot in the face? No okay. clue. Because I've, it's not like I ever took a soccer ball to the face as a kid. I've never had a face injury. I've never had anybody like threaten my face in some way. No clue. Just for whatever reason, that is not the happy place. Which I mean, I'm huh. fine with it now. We uh, we okay. found that the if I was warmed, kind of warmed up and dialed in on my fight, it wouldn't bother me. Just whatever. I'm good. It's like, are you okay? And people are like, are you okay? Because my friends and teammates all know what that shot will do. I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. But, okay, well, interesting. And so we started to, for lack of a better word, desensitize me, I'll say earlier and earlier and earlier in my practice or in my day. So that even if I, mm-hmm. even if it is like the first shot of the day, I'm like, okay, give me a sec. I'm okay. And I, I also, and I learned okay. for me, like sometimes maybe like somebody gets me and they're like, oh God, like, like head would snap back. And they're like, oh God, are yeah. you okay? And I'm like, I'm good, but can I have a hug? That does something positive ah, for my brain. For me, it, you know, I'm like, and at least, at least in my area of the SA, we are most of us are generally huggy people, or at least okay with it if you ask. And something about that resets my brain and goes, "We're okay. Nobody's a threat or dangerous. They just hugged you, and I, then I can just get may, on with may, my maybe day." It, maybe mm-hmm. it recasts it from yeah um, from assault to accident. You all, I think, it, yeah, I think that's what it is. It reclassifies like, you know, it in if, my if, brain. Yeah, so if you if you accidentally bumped into somebody, you apologize. Yeah, and you move and on. It's, and it's clearly an accident and no one cares and you forget about it in two seconds. Yeah. But if you do it deliberately, that, that lack of social interaction afterwards mm-hmm. makes it makes it much more stressful. Yeah. Right? Like, like okay, I... Learned this when I moved to Finland as an exchange student in 1994. Oh, fun! Where, I'm not going to tell you how young yeah, I in, was. <laughs> <laughs> in, yeah, but in 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 Finland, Finns are, are, tend to be fairly introverted and they tend to be fairly um, quiet, yeah. and they 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 respect your personal space. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, in Britain, if an English person walks into a lamppost, they'll apologise to the lamppost. <laughs> right? It's just automatic. Yes. Right? In in Finland, if somebody jostles you like on a I don't know, you're walking down the street and you bump shoulders by accident or yeah. whatever, the Finns don't apologize. Interesting. Right? And I was I was ranting about this to one of my Finnish friends. Yeah. And she said, Yeah, but guy, the thing is, that person has already, you know, offended you by invading your personal space. 
if he then insists on a conversation, mm. he is then invading your psychological space and compounding the thing. So the polite thing to do is you both mutually pretend it didn't happen. I was like, oh, fuck. Very different <laughs> cultural outlook. Exactly, exactly. But once it's explained, it makes sense. Yeah. And I, I stopped being upset when Finns yeah. failed to apologize. And when I accidentally jostle a Finn, I don't apologize. But there is this, there's this vocalization you can make, which is, oh, right? Ah. And all that, what that does is, it is, uh, I acknowledge, uh, that was definitely an accident. Um, sorry to bother you. Um, I would not wish to compound that with actual speech, but mm. here is just a little grunt so that you know that I wasn't I just being this. a dick. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, oh, very, very useful yeah. little, little finishization. That makes me um, think of, I, you know, I've heard people who will say, oh, you know, Americans, oh God, they smile too much. It's so superficial. And I'm like, no, like when you like accidentally like lock eyes with somebody in the grocery store and you smile, it's pretty much the smile is like, hi, I'm in a good mood and I'm not a threat to you. Is how I interpret it. Because like if somebody doesn't like, you know, I lock eyes with somebody, they don't smile at me in the grocery store. And I'm like, OK, jerk. <laughs> yeah, but but like, like Americans in Finland have a, have a bit of oh, a God. tricky oh, time God. adjusting because. We would be so offensive because like, we talk to everybody. Right. And, and oh, like. In Finland, you only ask a question if you want to know the answer. So an American saying, how's your day going? Right? We don't actually want or to some... hear it. We just want to hear, oh, no. it's good. <laughs> right. But you ask that to a Finn and I'll be like, well, it's very strange that this person I don't know is is talking to me. Yeah. Um, but they've asked me a question. Clearly, they must want to know the answer. So I'll give them as much of an answer as I feel capable of right now, or as you know, I'm willing to divulge. And yeah. so you'll get a whole, a whole like a whole improper answer. Yeah. And and it's it's just this 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 clash of of cultures because I do love that you know, kind of stuff though. Yeah, but and, and like politeness is cultural. Oh so, yes. So and given that that like most of the trauma that seems to matter is mm -hmm. interpersonal mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's the social injury, mm -hmm. the notion that there is a person who actively wants to hurt you like that yes. that seems yes. to be the most psychologically damaging, mm -hmm. right? Or these getting getting the cultural aspect of it right yeah. must be really important. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Um, so speaking of cultures, what, what is your view on social media? I, I think it's a, it's a tool. And, you know, it's just a tool and like any tool, it can be used for, you know, we can use the tool properly. We can use the tool improperly. It means in terms of like, well, this, this is a nail and therefore it needs a hammer, but all I have is a wrench. So I'll just try it with the wrench. Go get the hammer. Um, some people, you know, some people use social media well, some not so well. Some like to be antagonistic, some not. It's just a tool. Um, yeah. Okay. But. Uh-huh. Yes. And that's pretty much how I use it. Mm -hmm. But um, from a psychological perspective, from the perspective mm. of a psychotherapist, um, from a from a psycho from a psychological standpoint, this is mm. a tool that can do damage. And because strictly speaking, it is a very new tool, we haven't yeah. gotten around to a all of the positives and all of the negatives, and b how to navigate that. Um, especially with my teen clients. Now, teens are developmentally programmed to be very peer-focused. 
um, like with my teens, I don't know if this is a phrase, you know, where you're from. Uh, It's here. It's, you know, oh, if all of your friends jumped off a bridge, would you jump too? And it's supposed to be derisive. But to me, I'm like, I kind of want the answer to be yes, because I want you to be peer focused. Just make a short, you know, a very small bridge, you know, just a little, a little (laughs) jump, you know, not a big bridge. Um, And so they are constantly plugged into their peers. And when they have a good relationship with their peers, wonderful. But if you're like me and you were bullied a lot in school, they now don't get to come home to a hopefully safe place because the bullying from school can now follow them because a lot of them cannot just can't seem to help themselves, but be on Snapchat, be on Instagram, even when they keep getting this negative feedback. And so that's something that I will deal with. I will deal with some of my teens is helping to frame this and helping to go like, okay, so like Sally's, Sally's a bitch. Can I say that? <laughs> yeah, of course you can. Okay, you so say like, she's a fucking bitch if you want. Yeah, it's like, okay, so like Sally's a fucking bitch. Have you considered maybe unfollowing her on Snapchat? And sometimes it's like, wait, I can do that? Like, yes, yes, my child, yes. you can do that. And sometimes being like, you know what? Maybe, maybe put the phone down or maybe don't open Snapchat. But you know, these are all, those are developmental skills. But, you know, I see that a lot in my teens now that they don't get to un- unplug. They don't get to step away from those negative pressures at school that like I got to do. I got to go home where I thankfully had a loving and supportive family. So at least I had somewhere safe to go. And actually, one of the secrets of surviving boarding school is finding safe places in the school where they can't find you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so basically what social media is doing for these some of these kids is it's is replicating the boarding school experience for them. Yeah. Because even they, at home, they're still at school. Yeah, even at home, they're still at school. Even at home, That's their horrific. peers are still there. It's horrific. I mean, there's very... I'm reaching the conclusion that there are very few children who are not bullied at some point in their school oh, sure. life. I'm pretty sure they all are to a greater or lesser extent. And it's just horrific to me to think, like, you never you never get to walk away from that. And the bull... And, no. Oh, my God. The bullying gets creative, I will say. The ways in which some nasty people will use this tool that is social media. And then I want to go find them and I want to beat them up. And I'm like, no, Carrie, don't beat up a child. That is a bad thing. (laughs) That is generally frowned upon. Every now and then in a movie or TV show or whatever, like some kid is bullying some other kid. And that other kid's usually, I don't know, step parent or somebody who's not usually the parent. Like goes up and just belts the kid who is... (laughs) It's so, like, it's, like, it's so satisfying. So satisfying. Like, oh, it yes, is. Yes. <laughs> it is so it is satisfying. Very... I'm but sure there's no, a lot of... Hitting, hitting children is wrong and it's not helpful. No. But, oh my <laughs> God, it would relieve your feelings. Oh, I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's a lot of us. We see that in a movie. We're like, take that, Timmy Johnson. <laughs> to all the Timmy Johnsons listening, that was not aimed at you. <laughs> no, I'm sorry if there's anybody out there named Timmy Johnson. I'm sorry. I didn't mean you. That's why I usually just say Bob, <laughs> even though I know well, we have quite we have we have quite a lot of Bobs listening. I'm sure because yes. at least a couple of regular listeners are called Bob because they email me and tell mm-hmm. me they've liked a particular show. So yeah. so let's not call them Bob either. All right, no. <laughs> um, all right, now uh, slightly odd question. Mm-hmm. Um, in episode 134 of the show with Lisa Lucito, mm-hmm. um, the topic of furries came up. Yes, and and broadened my mind slightly. Yes. So what is 
and this is taken from your CV, of course. What yeah. is the Midwest Fur Fest Convention, and why do they need a psychological council? Okay, so the Midwest Fur, Fur Midwest Fur Fest is currently the largest furry convention in the U.S. Okay, um, and, so, and therefore probably the world. Quite possibly, I have no idea, but quite possibly. Um, I think we had around, I want to say thirteen thousand people this past December, but ah. don't quote me on that. Um, That's enormous. It's enormous. So anybody who's gone to any sort of nerd or fandom convention, it's the same thing. It's just that the topic is, you know, the topic is furries and furry fandom. Um, my eyes were open because I call myself furry adjacent because I have friends who are furries and I'm involved in this convention. It's just not my fandom. Though I can give you a hilarious anecdote about my first MFF. Um, my, do you want to hear it? Yeah, please. Okay. So I was dating this guy at the time, and he was a furry, and he wanted to go to this convention. And at the time, I'm like, okay, like, I've never really heard of this, but okay, sure, I'll be a good girlfriend. So I'm like 25 at the time. I go, and I am so clearly not tall enough to ride this ride. I am just going like, what is this? Like, this is just, I've never seen anything like this. This is weird. Um, Just my brain was kind of... And in psychology we know that your brain can only maintain arousal for so long. It can only be angry for so long. It can only be anxious for so long before it eventually just poops out. Somewhere in the afternoon, I had finally reached this point. And if there is a higher power, this power has a sense of humor. And it was my day. It was clearly my day. Because literally, the thought in my head is to go, well, you know... The only way this could get any worse is if I saw, like, my dad or somebody I know. Carrie? I hear somebody call my name. Now, of course, I'm overlooking the fact that, like, if I see somebody I know here, they're probably here because they want to be here. Versus me, I'm like, I'm just being a girlfriend and I'm going, what the hell is this? So I hear somebody call my name. And I look, my head has thoroughly exploded. All of the hamsters have fallen out of all of the wheels. And there's this little wolf looking at me. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? This person lifts the head off and looks at me. And I swear to God, you could see the timer over my head going tick, tick, ding, Sarah. This was the girl who was my next door neighbor in the dorms my first year of college. And I realized who this is, and then the piggyback thought is to go, well, this explains why she liked being the school mascot so much. (laughs) (laughs) She had a part-time job as the school mascot, and she loved it. Right, dressing up as a fairy animal, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, and so after my brain has thoroughly exploded and all of the hamsters have fallen out of the wheels, we talk, we connect, and then like 30 minutes later, she has me judge fursuit charades, which was one of the funniest things I have ever done people are really expressive for the despite the fact that they have these really big like you know paw fur hands on so really expressive and that was my first mff (laughs) (laughs) okay so why do they need a psychological council so the way this happened is you know you have a lot you have a lot of people at this convention you have a lot of nerds at this convention um there's a lot of venn diagrams of fandoms if people haven't figured that out already And so just, you know, sometimes 
it's very, the convention is stressful. People or people get high or they have a bad trip, they get drunk, whatever. And issues can sometimes arise. The way I first got involved in this is I know somebody who is on the convention's legal team. And somebody had made a comment on social media that would potentially involve the convention. And so the legal team got involved and they contacted me because they had a what I thought was a very pertinent psychological question. And they were like, before we decide our course of action, what do you think about this? Could this be a potential psychological factor? And so I said, well, I have an answer, but let me go research. So I did some research because I'm trying to do my due diligence. And I said, well, here's my answer. You do with that what you want. And so then that started this kind of informal relationship with uh, first with, you know, the legal team, because I did know somebody. And then as well as the medical team and the security team, um, we did have an incident where somebody was just having a bad day and they were starting to express um, some suicidal, some suicidal ideation. And okay. so I was, I was a known person. I was known to the medical team and said, if anything comes up, contact me because none of y'all are trained to do this kind of assessment. And so I get called, I go down, I do an assessment. Thankfully, there was nothing immediate. This person was going to be fine, thankfully. But that's what I was there for. Um, okay. Just, you know, just so just was, to help. What, uh-huh. what was the initial question that you had an answer for, but you went to research? Okay, well, this particular person was in the process of transitioning. So they were on HRT. Okay. And so the question was, could this hormonal change be affecting what they're saying or their expression. Um, This particular person was translating from, or translating, transitioning from female to male. And so the question was, there's more testosterone in this person's system than it previously was. Could Could this potentially be a factor in what they are saying? And my, my, my clinical opinion and then the research I found was yes, because we have found that increases in testosterone in such as with, transitioning with HRT, can it potentially increase aggressive expression? But we haven't found any correlation yet with like aggressive behavior, but definitely, sure. you know, it could, it could be, a, you know, an ex, you know, a change in aggressive expression where somebody maybe, you know, may go from, oh, I don't like this person or I hate you or fuck off to like, I'm going to blow your face off. That was a little extreme. I apologize. Um, and so they were like, before we make a decision on what we're going to do, could this be a factor? And that's how I got okay. called up. And I thought that was a very, very insightful, pertinent question to ask. I don't know what they ultimately did because that was none of my business. Sure. So interesting. Yeah, because yeah. I guess whenever you have like 13,000 people in one place, Something's you are happen. going to get psychological. Yeah. There are going to definitely be psychological issues will come up. Yeah. And ah, the okay. beauty is that there is like kind of an informal team of therapists who are all at this convention and everybody volunteers in different capacities. So like one person is, I can't remember if their head or deputy head or co-head something is involved in the panel programming. And so uh, she now helps us get mental health program, mental health panels in the program. Um, so like I do like how to cope with anxiety at a convention. Um, okay. We did one on ADHD I typically do one on like how to find a therapist in your rights as a client. Um, we have people who happen to be therapists at the info desk. A uh, person who heads up disability services is also a therapist. We have a therapist who does um, a panel at the last day every year um, on like lost friends, people who we have lost in the year since, and just kind of has 
a place for people to sit and kind of talk about the people they've lost. And the person who leads that is a licensed therapist. And then those of us- I think that have to be. Yes. Um, That's one of the benefits of having a therapist who is like, gets to say yes, no on the paneling. They can go, okay, this is a mental health panel. What is your qualification? Because they had that happen once. Somebody who was, it was basically, I have this condition. I'm going to talk about this condition. And it was, this is my experience. But it was presented as it's this is how it is. And it did not go well. Right. So there was yeah. a shift there. But the benefit is now, like if one of us is not, you know, doesn't have some other obligation, we go to that remembering people we've lost panel and we're just there as extra support. Um, or a couple of years ago, I did a whole like hour and a half panel on trauma. And so I had some of the other therapists just sit in the back. And I said, there are licensed therapists back there. If anybody just needs their head screwed back on for a few minutes, they are right back there. Go talk to them if you're feeling dysregulated or need some support. So it's a beautiful thing now. And I really want that to catch on with lots of other conventions. Because as you said, you get that many people together in a small, in a relatively small space, someone's going to have some struggle they didn't anticipate. Right. And I mean, it strikes me though that I would guess that one of the reasons that people want to dress up as fairy animals, which I guess is like the core fairy thing, right? Well, it's it's That's one aspect. The the, the well, common okay. and I don't want to try to speak for all furries, but my understanding no, is sure. the common thread is an interest in anthropomorphic animals. So like Disney's Robin Hood or right. Zootopia. That's that's sure. the the that's the scent that's the core. And some people like to dress up. Right, because I would imagine that for someone who likes to dress up like that, mm-hmm. there will be a a sense of kind of comfort and security in that. I imagine so there could be. I, I it, it strikes me as like the 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 like why I mean, you would do it because it, either it's fun, yeah, or someone's paying you to do it. Like if you mm-hmm. work at Disneyland, or yeah. it it gives you this like that people have like emotional support animals. Mm-hmm. So like I guess being your own emotional support animal. Yeah, I mean. There's many reasons really? to dress sure. up as there are people. And for some but people, like, yeah. One of, one, of the, one of the big differences yeah. between the SCA and the rest of the historical martial arts world mm-hmm. is in the SCA, the clothing is super important. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's for a lot of people a license to have an alter ego and dress yes. up as somebody else. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody develops a, a persona. Now, for some people, it's like, here's my name, and it's from this place in this time period, and that's it. Some people can give you the entire life's history of their persona. And some people are like, this is just me in my spare time. Some people do create something of a character, or it's it's the aspects of themselves that they don't get to be at work. Um, Like, I'll talk with with people. Mm -hmm. I've I've met many people in the SCA for whom it's really clear that... Who they really are is their SCA person. Mm-hmm. And the other stuff is like the clothes they put on to go to work. Yeah. I talk to people about, you know, like if you've ever seen like a video of like a recording studio and there's the guy with the board with all the sliders on it. Yeah. I think of each of those as like aspects of our personality and depending on where we are, different sliders come up and go down. So like mm-hmm. therapist me is a different person from SCA me. SCA me is a doofus and a goofball. Therapist me, that's not always appropriate. Now, is it? You know, it's not <laughs> always appropriate. Not, no. Yeah, it's not always appropriate to crack a joke. Now, I'm a 
I don't think of myself as a traditional therapist. I do say some pretty wild things in therapy for therapeutic reasons. If it's like, oh, you know, like the therapy, like, oh, the clients, you know, we need to release this tension for the client. They can't hold this much longer. That's the moment to crack a joke or to say something funny. Um, I will sometimes just write down like the wild things I've said in session. And I look at it a year later and go, what on earth were we talking about? <laughs> Which apparently my yeah, clients out of, love. Out of, out of context is maybe, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so I have a couple of questions that I ask all of my, my guests, or at least yeah. the ones who consent to those questions, because yes. it's all entirely consensual. Yes. Um, and, and some people have, like, some people have declined the whereabouts in the world are you question. Yeah. Some people have declined the one I'm about to ask you, and some have declined the one that comes next. But okay. at least so far, consented to all of them. So, um, Fire what fire. is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Oh, gosh. Um, well, the best idea that I think I haven't acted on yet, we, we, we did, we have a theory. We have a new theory. Uh, my, my teacher and I, uh, Kai and I, um, we strongly suspect that height plays a bigger role in success, at least in SCA fencing, uh, than we perhaps realized. And at least our theory is that it definitely, it definitely, um, has a difference in early successes, which we think. Yes then affects whether or not people stay because if you go okay, look I at our a, yes yes go ahead so i i have a statistic for you that may oh let's hear it maybe this will ideas. save us some time all right. okay all right about 10 percent of the world's population are left-handed mm-hmm. right about 50 percent of top level fences are mm-hmm. left-handed and the reason is because in training and, uh-huh. and up until you get to the higher levels Left-handers see lots of right-handers and know how to deal with them. Uh-huh. But right-handers don't see many left-handers, yeah. and so aren't so used to dealing with them. We so have there's this early le- advantage. Yeah, we have two lefties yeah, at my practice, and I'm so happy about it. <laughs> Very useful. Yeah, yes. and, and any any good instructor should be able to give a lesson mm-hmm. on either hand. Yeah. Um, so you can train your students to deal with lefties, mm-hmm. uh, or train your lefty students to deal with righties, or whichever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the early success thing. It's the same problem as mm-hmm. the women dropping out thing. Yeah. Right? And it's the same reason that, that you know, left-handers tend to do better mm-hmm. until they hit the sort of national level kind of yeah. level of competition. Um, and so the height thing, I guess the real difference is with height, there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. You can train lefties to deal with righties. You can train righties yeah. to deal with lefties. Um, and you can train short people to deal with tall people and vice versa. Yeah. But you're dealing with a, a trait that it is an advantage to be taller yeah. in fencing. Mm-hmm. There's just no way around it. Yeah. Because um, there's this whole area on the in the fencing arena where you can hit your opponent and they can't hit you. And that Story is of my life. Story of right. my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so I, I think... So, like, what do we want to do with this information? Yeah. What are you going to do with it? Well, what I want to do with that is kind of raise the awareness and be like, hey, guys, let's be aware of this and let's be intentional when in in communicating this knowledge to new fencers and go, hey, I'm going to pick Bob and Sally because these are the names I always use. Hey, you know, Sally, don't feel bad. Bob isn't necessarily a better fencer than you. He's just taller. He can reach you before you can reach him. 
And so there's a level of skill that he doesn't need to have right now to still get you. But you can, but, you know, you can clearly learn how to overcome that. I am clear evidence of that. I am 5'5", five five and I am surrounded by people who are like six foot and taller. Hey, Bob, right. you're having early successes. Don't let that go to your head. There is still skill you need to learn to be a competent fencer. Here's the way I frame it. Yeah. It is a huge advantage to be smaller and weaker mm-hmm. because you have to learn to get it right. Uh-huh. That is right? kind of Whereas maybe... if you're bigger and... Yeah. If you're bigger and stronger... Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. If, if you're bigger and stronger, you can win without actually getting it right, mm-hmm. which is going to put a cap on your development as a fencer. Yeah, it's going to catch up so, to you. Yeah. So, I mean, one, one thing that's really impressive is when you see somebody who is very big and very strong who is also very highly skilled Mm -hmm. because they must have been able to overcome the complacency that their natural advantages gave them. Yes. And still learn to get, you know, to to get to that extraordinary level. So, yeah, I I would frame it as as a disadvantage to be tall. Yeah. When learning defense because... You know, it'll become an advantage later, but in the early stages, it's a huge disadvantage because you will just, you'll, you will get away with stuff you shouldn't get away with. You are lulled into a false sense of security. Right. And, yeah. and your, your training is, is, is beset with false positives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Behaviors that shouldn't be rewarded get rewarded because they yeah. work in the yeah. short term mm-hmm. because of this particular thing. But yeah. as soon as you come up against someone taller than you, you're going to get creamed. Yeah. Or somebody who's shorter than you, but knows what they're doing. Right. Um, okay, so what are you what are you doing to actually like establish whether this is a, f- a factor? I think it's. I mean, to my mind, it clearly must be. But yeah, I mean, to my that, mind, to our minds as well, it clearly must be. But you know, we're going to try to be as scientific about this as we can. Sure, because um, an awful lot of things that clearly must be so actually aren't. Actually, aren't. Um, <laughs> so we were only able to do this once last year. This was our let's do that. Let's do this proof of concept and so we did a height tournament and i, I want to say okay. it was maybe five nine was the cutoff but i think we just lined everybody up and we went okay what's what's halfway boom and i think it was five nine we're like five nine and up go over there uh five eight and shorter go over there and then we tallied up and we said round robin just go fight everybody and so we tallied up wins and on the tall side where also a lot of we were looking at we're going that's a lot of bronze rings and a lot of masters of defense. Those, those are our upper two levels. It's kind of like getting mm-hmm. your masters and your PhD over on that tall side. We're going, there's a lot of awards over there. And so that, that broke down like we would expect it to. But then on the, on the five, eight and shorter side, we saw very different results from what we normally do. People that would get maybe one to three wins in say a round robin tourney, we're knocking out five, seven, nine wins out of like a dozen people or out of a dozen other people. We're going, wait a minute. <laughs> so maybe there is something to this that when they are of a height that, that I can just reach you from orbit factor. Yeah. I, we, there yeah, are so, weight classes in wrestling for the same reason. Uh-huh. And we don't, we don't necessarily do that in fencing. We don't have height classes. Maybe we should. I don't know. But it was interesting. And we're like, okay, proof of concept. We're going to do this multiple, we're going to do this many more times because, mm. you know, science is repeatable. Right. That, that's interesting because it would be a useful, um, I mean, it, weight classes are useful in wrestling tournaments. No question mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. having height classes in fencing tournaments, I can, I, I'd be very curious to see whether whether you can actually generate a sufficient body of evidence that will actually persuade people that this should be the norm. Of course, there's also, I'm not sure we have a sufficient number of people, at least in my area of the SCA, to no, do high classes. No, the SCA is enormous. Yeah. But when you, you think have, of the you num- just have to get everybody doing it. Try yeah, it. Just, yeah. Or just like, okay, at this one event, we're going to do height classes. We're like, okay, well, that one has three people in it. That one has five. So people may not ultimately want to do that. They may be like, okay, oh yes, my- we're aware. Okay, I'm I'm at least provisionally going to Lord Baltimore's challenge in July. Okay. Okay. And that's an SCA and historical martial arts community event run by yeah. David Biggs, mm-hmm. fantastic instructor, who's also coincidentally or not coincidentally very tall. Yeah. I I will float the idea to him of yeah. having maybe the early the early pools being yeah. segregated by height and see what happens. Yeah, let's see what happens. That, oh, that, that could be, be really, really. That could be really be cool. Really, really interesting. And just see, yeah, okay. and you know, people can self-report. Like, okay, like, how did you do? How many? You know, how did you do? You know, as opposed to other tournaments. However, you want to slice that. If it's victories or yeah. feeling of confidence, whatever you want to do. Oh, that could be so yeah. interesting. And it's, it's no coincidence that that. Okay, there was one guy who's short. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's I'm sort of average height, and he's he's a bit shorter than me. Mm-hmm. Who I think he won the last time, not the last time I was there, the time before, and he did very well because he's a very, very good fencer. Yeah, but most of the winners are very tall. Mm-hmm. And one of the things is my teacher is like six two, six three, so he's very tall, and I'm five five. I was going to ask you actually. Right, yeah, I was going to ask you. Okay, from what you said about him, mm-hmm. he's clearly a very good instructor. Yes. How come? I don't know. Um. He, he does have a Taekwondo background. I think he's like a third degree, second or third degree black okay. belt in Taekwondo. And at one point he did teach children. So I think some of that helped. But what I can't uh, figure okay. out, what I can't figure out is if he learned this, some of this from teaching children or if he just intuits this. And like we have been working together a very long time. We have been working together 15, 16 years. And so I think there's also things that he learned from working with me going, okay, sure. That I have seen him use with with other female students. Currently, all of his students are female, so he's clearly doing something right. That we all like to work with him. He's clearly doing something <laughs> right. But he is so knowledgeable that he can give you, I'll say, different looks. He knows enough about an, he knows enough about enough different styles of fencing that he can give you different things and go. This is how you respond to um, Fabris, Capoferro, uh, Destreza things like that. Mm-hmm. And he knew how to train a five foot five fencer to competence in victory, even though he's like six two. Cause one of the things we practiced nice. a lot was how to get in safely. Cause he yeah. can, you know, obviously he can get me well before I can get him. So it was learning how to, I think of it as Pac-Man munch, de- munch my way down his sword until he's close enough that I can hit him, but I'm still safe. Yeah. And this skill has served me very, very well for obvious reasons. Yeah, sure. So. Uh, interesting. Okay. Maybe I should just ask him. Yeah, just ask All him. Right. He, I mean, I think he's great. I cannot sing his praises enough. Clearly. And uh, Clearly. it's great to hear, actually. <laughs> I, I hope I hope my students talk about me the same way. Oh, they probably um, do. 
so somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. I am mm-hmm. guessing you would spend it on teacher training, but yes, how would that you spend is it? the answer. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I mean, so how would you actually spend it? I mean, oh gosh, teacher um, training. But yeah, teacher training. Let's I think get it specific. Would, I think it would be you know here we're going to teach we're going to pay the teachers like your program is phenomenal and it'd be like everybody is huh well I've got your entire my like program? yeah your entire you know how to teach program I've I've been going through oh, it. Okay. I love it oh fantastic yeah and I loved that I was hearing a lot of the same you were saying a lot of the same things that I say and that I found out in my research and went I'm going to like him <laughs> <laughs> so I think that I think that information. And that knowledge needs to be disseminated wider. That's what I would do. I would make it available. Be like, okay, do I need to pay the instructors to record this? Do I need to pay for your your, your flight and your hotel to go listen to this person talk? And just raise the level of teaching acumen in, in fencing, in historical martial arts. So that A, more people can improve, more people can get better and can really reach the height of their capabilities and so that we lose fewer people due to bad training. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that adage that, like, you mm. know, a bad teacher will kill a student's inspiration every time. And I see it with my teenagers. They were like, oh, I used to love English, but, you know, Mrs. Smith, God, she's awful, and I hate English now. And given yeah. that fencing is something mm. we're supposed to be doing for fun, that sucks. All right. And I have teenage kids, and their attitude towards you. school. No, 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 it's great. <laughs> Seriously, it's like they are fantastic. Mm-hmm. But the um, my youngest is is choosing her subjects to do for GCSE, which is the exams they take when they're sixteen. She's going to be yeah. she's just turned fourteen. Yeah, and she's like, well, I want to do this subject, but only if the same teacher is teaching me in the GCSE course. Uh huh. I don't want to do it if it's one of the other teachers, and I don't mm-hmm. know. So, which what what subject should I do? And I think she's a hundred percent right. To be wanting to choose her courses by the teacher, not by the uh-huh. subject. I definitely in um, in college and grad school, everybody talked to each other about the the teachers. What kind of teacher is this? What is the quality of the instruction? And people would absolutely try to pick a section with a teacher that they had liked or that their friends had liked or something like right. that. Absolutely. Yeah. So so back to spending the money. You're thinking mm-hmm. of things like. Um, Creating like teacher training programs, basically. Yeah, and getting people to the teachers or getting the teachers to the students. Okay, uh, so now I guess the question is, how are we going to raise that million dollars? And oh, would you even need question. a million dollars for that? Probably not. Know, probably not. Um, hmm. How Maybe you we on- should organize it. Sorry. Oh, so how are you on car washes? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's 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 a very very inefficient way of making money. Yes. Yes. Um, but, yeah, because I'm thinking, like, to organize a teacher training event in the States mm-hmm. is relatively straightforward. And mm-hmm. if groups are encouraged to subsidize their teachers' attendance at the event, yeah, the, the group – I mean, when I was running my school in Finland, um, I would travel a lot yeah. to events and whatever. And basically, a lot of the money that was coming in – from my students was going to pay for my education because yeah. then and then I would when I was traveling I would find good teachers and I would bring them back to and I'd, I'd hire them to come over to Finland and teach my students for a weekend or two weekends yeah. or whatever and so then my students would would pay for that seminar which would pay mm-hmm. for 
the instructor's time. But yeah. then I have this instructor staying in my house for a week. Mm-hmm. So there's an awful lot of, of kind of cross-pollination and, yeah. and cross-training and stuff going on. So I think it's perfectly normal for students to pay for their teacher's instruction. Yeah. So I guess the question is really, how does one organize such a thing? And then how does one advertise it to the groups such that it makes sense for the groups to sponsor their instructors? And one of the tricky things, at least in the U.S., is distance. Is just the sheer size of the country. You know, it could be, oh, Guy Windsor is going to be at this event in Boston. It's like, okay, well, great. That's 12 hours from Well, that does happen. (laughs) Yeah. Well, sure you okay, have. you say that. The last time I was in Seattle, mm-hmm. um, someone flew over from Maine together. Yeah, and some people can afford that, and some people can't. <laughs> and so it's oh, so it's like okay, so I drive. Okay, how long am I driving? Oh, well, it's eighteen <laughs> hours. Is yeah, it really eighteen yeah, if, hours? If, and for some people, but, it but isn't. Then, for some people, it's not. And some people just can't. But then if, mm-hmm. but if, but if the clubs are if the clubs are like paying for flights and whatnot, yeah. Then, then That's what I would do with that million dollars is I would, you know, either pay for the for the materials to be made so they can be consumed online or pay mm-hmm. to get the, the students and the, the, the students and the teachers in the same place at the same time. You know, whether it's okay. that's what I would do, because, like, I don't want to ask one instructor to spend a month flying all over the U.S. because that is exhausting. I I've done that sort of thing I, okay. that, that to me that's that's like that's that's kind of normal i want part part of my job is flying okay, places and teaching seminars and yeah it's tiring but it's great fun and yeah. it's totally worth it and yeah you know like the last time i was in the states i went it was seattle then madison then boston that was boston no that was then it was lord baltimore's challenge in, in it not boston, um, it's like don't ask baltimore. me yeah yeah so uh, uh, you know, in Australia, like last time I was there, it was Melbourne, then Adelaide, then Sydney, and then it was New Zealand. Yeah. Or it was New Zealand wow. first, I've forgotten which. But, That's but so like cool. lots of, yes, it's great. And it's, it's really good fun. And I love doing it. And it is very tiring. And of course, the flights are expensive, but it is cheaper to fly one person yes. to those places than yes. it is to fly 30 students to yes. any given location. Yeah. So, um, yeah, okay. So, well, if I had the money, I'd probably give it to you. Well, thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Carrie. Of course. It's been, it's been wonderful. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Carrie. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you will find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode, including Carrie's article, Psychology and the SCA Fencing Woman, as well as a picture of those gorgeous baby pink goggles that Terry Tyndall made for me. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Alberto Mattea, who is an Italian film composer and filmmaker, also actor and reenactor, and he is the person who has produced this extraordinary short film called Fiore, which is about 11 minutes of the most accurate representation of the late 14th century I've ever seen on screen. You definitely don't want to miss that, so subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. And of course, if you've enjoyed this episode, 
do share it with your friends. Share it far and wide. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Thank you.